chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. Up here, I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you want to read along with me, you can do this or read along in your Bible. I'll kind of keep you informed of which verse I'm in if it's a little bit different. So here is Paul at the end of this letter, and he says this. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a, a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14. But may it never be that I should bo- well, I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. All right. Some say that verse 11 verifies that the thorn in the flesh that so many people know about with Paul, he writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He speaks about that he had a thorn in his flesh and that he, he petitioned God to relieve it and God said that my grace is sufficient. But that thorn in the flesh has never been identified by Paul. Many speculate about it. And because, like in, for instance in Galatians 4.13, Paul writes and he speaks about that his, he had a bodily illness. And that right after that in 4.15... And in 4.15, right after that, Paul makes this odd statement that would, if you connect the two, you, you get a sense that maybe we know what he's talking about. Um, let's start in 4.12. I beg of you, brother, become as I am, for I also became as you are. You have done me no wrong, but I know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. Now then, We'll read through. And, and that, verse 14, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And then he makes this statement. Where then is that blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So many people put those comments together and they say, well, why would he need their eyes unless his eyes were damaged, are not working properly. And then you come to this passage, and he says, see with what large letters I write this. And again, someone who usually writes in large letters is because they need to see them large, you know. Some of you have Bibles like that, I know. Um, So they need to see large letters. And so there are many who would say that that trial, that thorn in his flesh, was probably an eye damage or an eye condition of some sort. But still... There's no way to be certain. But what's really important, regardless of, of why he's writing with large letters, the most important aspect of that statement is that he is writing it himself. You know, it's not uncommon at all. You know, a matter of fact, you'll see this throughout the scriptures in several places where they say, such, the scribe introduces himself and says, I'm writing this on behalf of so-and-so. And so it's... it's more than likely, that's exactly what's happening here. There was a scribe who had written the letter for Paul as he dictated it, but now he's taken the pen from this man's hand and he's put it in his own hand and he says he begins to write. And in the, in the 
the value of that is because now he's trying to personalize it. Now he is putting weight on the message. It's not like it's not like so and so. It's not like this other guy's been writing this, and this is kind of what I think. It's kind of like with my handwriting, I'm telling you, I'm speaking to you personally. You know, if you paid attention to the letter, you know that he started out the letter angry, and as the letter has gone through in verses in chapters four and five, that tone had begun to change, and he began to speak with more words of compassion. And here he comes to the end of the book, and now he's saying. With my own hands, I'm writing this to you. And it's, this, and it's this demonstration of affection. It's a demonstration of love. And it's just like it is with parents so often. You know, when, when we are coming into a situation with our kids and we are lighting into them, and you've done there before and you guys have experienced this in real life, you know, parents walk into a room, they destroy it, and they say, I'm so sorry, I love you so much. Do you understand why I did this? You know, they, they go from from a lot of heat, and they transition to, like, I love you. I love you. Let's get this right. And that's what Paul is saying here as he's closing the book. I love you, and I want you to understand what I'm trying to communicate. Now, he begins to speak, as he so often does, in contrasting terms here. You know, for instance, can you, can you think of some things, can you give me some examples of some things that are opposites of one another? Give me some, some examples of opposites. Somebody talk to me. Light, night and day, thank you very much. Cold and hot, thank you very much. Good and evil, what? Near and far, thank you very much. All those are great examples of opposites. Brussels sprouts and everything else that tastes good, those are opposites. <laughs> You know, clean to dirty, guilty to innocent, slow to fast, free to imprisonment. But the opposite that, that, that Paul is really drawing attention to here is the opposite of grace, which is legalism. Grace is unearned favor. Legalism is favor that I earned. And just so that all of us are on the same page... What Paul is doing in this letter is he is saying that you cannot earn favor with God. You cannot earn forgiveness of sin from God. There is nothing you can do. Instead, God, through his grace, gives you favor. God, through his grace, unmerited favor. It's nothing you worked for. God, through nothing you did, will forgive you of your sins. And so Paul is going to contrast the opposite of grace, which is legalism, in, these, in this closing paragraph. Remember who these teachers are. They were, they were probably Jews who at some time or another had professed Jesus, perhaps, but they claimed themselves as being Christians. As, as one pastor has said, that they taught Jesus plus. They didn't deny that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't deny that his death and his resurrection, they didn't preach against him and believing in him, but they in essence said that what Jesus started, we need to finish. We must finish the unfinished work of Christ. Now that should ring a bell to you. You should have, I should see little, little bubbles above your head, all of you with little red flags right now. We must finish 
the unfinished work of Christ. How could that be? I can, I can give you a passage, and I bet you whether you know exactly what it says, you know what it says. And that's John 19.30, Christ said, it is finished. There's no unfinished work here. There's nothing left undone. As he was dying, he said, in this death, it is finished. In this, in this, in this episode of my life, in what's happening right here, it is finished. Paul, on the other hand, instead of teaching Jesus plus, Paul taught that Jesus was true to that statement of John 19.30, and all the work to justify mankind was complete, and he had done all that himself. No man helped him. No man needed to help him. Jesus did it by himself, and in doing so, he completed the work of salvation by dying on the cross and rising again three days later. In verse 12 of our text, Paul gives us the motive of these Judaizers, of these false teachers. Their motive was twofold to make a good showing in the flesh, and to avoid persecution. Read verse 12 with me. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. So they may boast in your flesh. There is a play in words here I'm sorry, let me go back and say that um, there's a play in words here that has to do with the outward act of circumcision and making a good showing in the flesh. What Paul is saying here is that these false teachers are boasting about cutting away the foreskin and using that to display their spirituality. Paul says their motive is to make a good showing of what you are doing of your flesh. They worked to bring the Galatian Christians from a Gentile background under circumcision and because it would make a good showing for them. It's like notches on the belt. It's like winning people to your argument. It's like gaining new followers. That's the good showing they wanted. To say that these people said this before, but now they say this now. They used to say that they didn't need to follow the Jewish customs, and now they do. But the other part of the equation, the other part of it, is as to this persecution they feared. If they could convince the Galatians to conform, they would please the Jewish leaders and avoid the Jewish leaders' wrath. Their unwillingness to stand in the face of this pressure made them stand for false doctrines. Now, side note, but very applicable. And you're not going to agree. Some of you might not agree. You see, he's saying... By getting you, by that they want to avoid persecution, he says. So if I can get you to agree with me, I'll avoid persecution. I get you on my side, and those that I report to are happy with me. It, it appears that perhaps some of these false teachers at one time really did believe in grace and grace alone. Maybe they really did believe that Christ alone was all it took to be saved. But somehow or another, through pressure and to avoid persecution, they said, you know what? I've thought about this, and I think you do need to do a few things. I think you need to watch what you eat. You can't eat certain foods because that would be sinful. I think you you need to be circumcised. I think you have to do these things to really be a Christian because of pressure and the fear of persecution. Well, that's happening right now. 
The pressure to agree with doctrines or statements that have never been considered orthodox is huge right now. And you need to listen. Don't really hear me. And don't think you hear me. And don't think you know what I'm about to say. Listen to my words. And make sure you understand me. The LGBT agenda, the gay lesbian agenda, is the biggest agenda in our nation and perhaps the world that is bullying people into submission to agree with it. Just like perhaps these guys were. We think it's okay to be grace only. We think it's okay. And then there's pressure on them to capitulate to a different opinion for fear of persecution, being ostracized, being isolated. Pastors and churches and theologians and authors are bending to this tsunami of popular opinion. If you stand against it, actually, you don't have to stand against it. You can just have a different opinion. And you'll be labeled as a hater, a homophobe, and dangerous to society. There was a study recently that said children, our children, the ones that you brought in downstairs, that you are corrupting them and making them dangerous to society. Published study in the past month that says that's what you're doing to your children by bringing them downstairs. This week it was Tony Dungy who made a comment about Michael Sams speaking his professional opinion, and he's a hater. A year ago, really about the same week, a year ago, no, two, uh, two years ago now, I guess it was, it was Chick-fil-A. A man says, this is how I want to run my business. He's a hater. And there have been numerous, numerous in between. No one is immune. So to avoid the condemnation, literally the persecution, you must do one of two things. Remain silent, even if you disagree. To speak up will cost you your job, your reputation, your friends. Speak up. That's the other thing you can do. You can speak up and then take the withering punishment that will come upon you. And don't think that because I'm a pastor that we get this get-out-of-jail card for free because of some kind of religious exemption. At the last inauguration for President Obama, Louis Giglio was supposed to pray at it. He'd been selected far in advance. But it came to the opponent's attention that he had preached a sermon somewhat like this one years ago and was labeled as a hater, a homophobe, dangerous to hear. And through the persecution, through the opinion of that agenda, he was removed from praying that prayer because he believed what Scripture says. You see, the punishment, the persecution is not jail time. Not yet. It's not 40 lashes. Not yet. In this new era of public opinion, the era... Oh, wait a minute. As a matter of fact, let me just make sure. We, can we all make sure? We all want to acknowledge this, okay? We are in an age of tolerance. True. We are in the age of tolerance. Remember that, okay? The punishment that you receive is a label. He's a homophobe. He hates gays. He's backwards. He's been brainwashed by an antiquated, out-of-date set of morals. He needs to evolve. 
like we do. That's what your vice president said about you. Those who fear such persecution, those who fear being labeled, fade into the woodwork. Those who have not said it, those who are standing around the speaker, they fade into the woodwork. And what happens is the speaker, the hater, is left alone in the middle. And he so often finds that he's out there all alone. There are a few who step forward and agree with the hater, but not many. The textbook for this is Saul Linsky's book, Rules for Radicals, the handbook for social unrest. It has 12 rules for fostering social change. Rule number five is this. Ridicule is a man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's irrational. It's, ir it's infuriating. It also works to a key, as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. If you don't think that's happening right now, dude, where are you? There's no such thing as a discussion. One of my favorite new bloggers is a guy named Andrew Dish. He's gay. But what I like about him is that he's labeled as anti-gay by many of his peers because he takes stands that flies in the face of the opinion. I love his writing. I don't agree with everything, but I love his courage to not submit and to just take it. He's been ridiculed. How many people, you could just name the list of people that this has happened to. The second rule is this. Pick, up, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after people. Go after people and not institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. It's happening today in a different way, different circumstances, but just like that, just like Paul's writing about. People who want to avoid persecution capitulate to pressure to avoid being labeled, to avoid being outed, to avoid this happening to them. All of what I've just said, you never heard me once Never heard me once. You didn't hear me one time say that gays are bad. Not once. I said the system and the agenda and the methodology is evil and wrong. The manner that tolerance is lived out is inappropriate and doesn't allow for discussion, doesn't allow for civil discourse. I never once said I hated anyone. I never once said you should hate anyone. You'll never hear me say that about anyone, especially about a gay person. Instead, what you will hear me say and what you heard me say before is that lying and stealing and lusting and laziness and porn and overindulgence and getting fat because you're just too darn lazy and homosexuality are all sin. 
All of them are. And so what I just said is that every single one of you in this room are sinful, regardless of your sin. That's what I just said. And so I'm not picking out a particular group. I'm picking out an agenda, and I'm picking out an attack on the church and on Christ and on you. And if you think you're going to get away from avoiding it, you've got another thing coming. You do. You just go out and post something. You go out in public and say something. And tell me that you didn't feel the heat. Because you will. How is this even closely related to Galatians 6? The Judaizers are saying, if you can't get them, if, if we can't get them to circumcise them, if we can get them to circumcise themselves, if we can get them to say there's more to this salvation thing we've won. They don't have to deny Christ. They don't have to quit the church. They just have to make a concession and avoid the persecution. In our day and time, it's the same concession. You don't have to say that you don't like Christ. You don't have to say you have to quit going to church. You don't have to, to not believing in Christ. You just have to say that homosexuality is okay too. You have to say that the Bible endorses it. If you say that, we're good with each other. If you don't, all hell's going to break loose on you. And if you don't think that's true, go look up a young man by the last name of Vines in his most recent work on the biblical nature and the biblical reason why homosexuality is endorsed and appropriate from biblical text. He has all the buzz. Al Mohler wrote a 48 or 50 or 98 page response to it. And what's happening is it's making it interesting as more and more theologians and pastors are saying, you know what, our church is open to this. We believe this is okay. This is all right. We are going to endorse it. Southern Baptist Church in California is the first Southern Baptist Church that just says, we are pro. We will embrace this lifestyle. As more and more that's happening, it's forcing the institutions over them to figure out what to do with them. So who's going to publish this young man's book? A Christian publisher. Well, how do you be a Christian publisher and publish on Christian stuff? You see the ripples that begin to go out and are forcing decisions to be made and reconsider everything that has been considered orthodox, categorized, appropriate, is now being said, what do we do with this? How do we handle that? So in our day and time, it's the concession that this is not wrong. Just say it and we'll leave you alone. We won't label you. We won't defame you in the marketplace or in the media. So just like being circumcised, aligned with Christianity and being Jewish, being said that, being, that agreeing to be gay aligns with the Bible means that it's okay to be gay. It removes the stigma. It removes the obstacle. It aligns the church with the LGBT agenda. And, you know, Paul takes this further, and he says that symbols have great meaning. If I show you a few symbols here, you'll know what they are just by looking at them. You don't need me to tell you who they are. Look at these here. So what's that one right there? Nazi Germany, the 1930s. What's that one right there? Black Power, 1960s. What's this one right here? Solidarity, the 1980s. Lequilenza and Poland, the trade unions. What's that one right there? Obama changed, 2008. And then most recently? Marriage equality, 
right now. All those symbols have meanings. All those symbols mean this is what I endorse. This is what I'm about. This is what I, I, I boast about. This is what I live for. Matter of fact, there's another one this week. Anyone know that one? It's a new symbol. It's being used right now. It is the Arabic letter N. None. And it's being used by ISIS in Iraq to label the Christians of Mosul. This is the symbol. If this symbol is on your home, you've been, you've been targeted for removal. You've been targeted by them as an enemy and need to be out of the way. This week, they took over a 4th century monastery that has been, well, there since the 4th century, and been Christian. And their goal is to eradicate every Christian. The N stands for Nazarene, or Christian. And their goal is to eradicate every Christian in that area. And so you're marked. It's the Star of David all over again. You're marked. And that mark has you labeled as an enemy, and we will take you out. Symbols have great power. They rally support for things. They go, you rally support for something or against something. In the case of none, it identifies Christians for persecution. When I wear a symbol, it means uh, I'm, I'm boasting of something. I'm making a statement about who I align with or who I align against. And, and in the days of my, of my youth, you know, and some of you guys, it was that. You know, let the sunshine in. Yeah, let the sunshine in. Hair down to there. You know. It said I was against the war. It said that I was against authority. It said I was against police brutality. I said I was against my parents. You know, it meant that I was doing for what I wanted with my body, injecting substances in it, sharing it with whoever I wanted to. And you can't tell me different. It was about sexual freedom, freedom of authority, freedom from the establishment. And you can see the false teachers viewed circumcision as a symbol that Christians had allowed themselves to be co-opted into their way of thinking, into their way of appeasing God. Circumcision was a symbol that stood for something. And it said, if you do this, you believe you have to add to your salvation. Read verse 14 in our text. But may, may it never be that I would boast except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The false teachers would boast that Christians had come over to their side, adapting the teaching that belief was not enough and that they had to do something. That's what they would boast about. Paul says, I will never boast about anything I've ever done. He says, I will only boast about what Christ has done. He is the one that died. He is the one that paid the cost of my sin. He's the one that lay dead for three days. He's the one that rose from the dead. He's the one that now sits at the right hand of God. That's who I would boast of. That cross is my symbol. It's what I align myself to. It's what it says, who I follow. That cross. And that cross is offensive to the legalists. It's offensive to many of us. Because legalism says, I have to do something to appease God or to earn my salvation. The cross is the opposite of legalism. It flies in the face of that we have to do our, anything for our own salvation. It means that the only thing we bring to, our, to the equation is our sin, and God does all the rest. 
So Paul says that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, what men think of me, what they say about me, what they may want from me, what they want me to believe, what they want me to admit, what they want me to say the Bible says, all of that is dead to me. And I am dead to that. It has no pull on me. It has no influence on me. One quote said, I no longer relate to the world the same way. I don't expect it to pay off. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It doesn't persuade me or own me any longer. It doesn't respect me and I have no use for it. But I will boast of this because I have Christ. I have everything. The cross is at my center. Another quote by C.H. McIntosh. He says, The same cross which connects me to the God, to God has separated me from the world. A dead man is evidently done with the world, and hence the believer, having died in Christ, is done with the world, and having risen with Christ, is connected to God, and in the power of a new life, a new nature, a new creation, as Paul says even in our text. Paul is saying that to change, to gain the favor of men, is a past thing from him. To bow to the pressure of people who say you must do something is a past thing to him. That would give them the chance to boast in his flesh, to boast about what Paul has done something for his salvation. It would give Paul the chance to boast. And you remember he wrote in Ephesians that salvation is a free gift so that no man may boast. All that's left is Jesus and what he's done for us. The challenge for us is what do we boast in? What symbol do we cherish and use to telecast our affections, our cause, our beliefs? There should only be one, and it should be the cross.